So when I say, in, I think religion poisons everything, I mean to say it infects us in our most basic integrity. It says we can't be moral without Big Brother, without a totalitarian permission. It means we can't be good to one another without this. We, we must be afraid. We must also be forced to love someone who we fear. It's a little jarring to hear in church, isn't it? The voice that you heard in that video belonged to Christopher Hitchens. If you're not familiar with who he was, he was a journalist, he was an author, uh, he was an outspoken critic of religious faith, he vehemently opposed uh, Christianity. He passed away a little over a decade ago, but his influence lives on because he serves as a voice uh, for people who, who doubt, who mistrust, who are skeptical. Uh, he's a voice uh, for those who tend to agree with his line of thinking. And as we jump in today, my question to you is this, what are you feeling? What was it like to hear that? If there's anybody in the room and you would say that you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, so you've got doubts and unanswered questions, whether you're in the room or whether you're watching online, it's our hope that you would feel encouraged today because we're going to respond to the things that Christopher Hitchens said. We're going to answer honestly. We're going to answer vulnerably. Uh, we're really going to engage that head on. And if that's you, if you're just really eager to hear what those answers are, I'm going to ask you to be a tad patient with me right now because first, it's important that I address all the, the followers of Jesus in the room and those who are watching online, and we have to address the wrapping paper that surrounds our response before we get to the substance of our response. And so for all of those of you in the room who are like me, who would say that, that I'm a follower of Jesus, I love Jesus, it's my trust in him, it's my allegiance to him that serves as the bedrock of my identity. As you listen to those words, what were you feeling? What was that like emotionally? Did anybody feel attacked? Did anybody feel uncomfortable? Was your emotional response something closer to feeling maybe a little bit of resentful or closer to compassion? I want you to think about that and just be kind of introspective right now as I read what has served as our theme verse throughout this series, 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this, let's say it out loud, with gentleness and respect. I suppose that's easy enough to do, to give gentleness and respect when you feel it, right? And it's certainly easier when you feel like the other person is approaching you with gentleness and respect. And in that regard, it's kind of like a game of catch. It's a lot easier, it's a lot easier for me to toss these things back to you if I feel like you're first giving them to me, right? How reasonable is it to expect someone to respond with gentleness and respect when they don't feel it? What about when you don't feel it? How reasonable is it to expect for you to respond like this when the other person is not approaching you with this? This verse right here is really driving me to ask myself some diagnostic questions. I'm gonna share those questions that I'm asking myself with you. And listen, I invite you to be as vulnerable with these questions as you wanna be. But these are the questions that I'm asking myself because of this verse. Do the people who know me the best, would they use these words to describe me? Gentleness and respect. The people who only know me from a distance, would they use these words to describe me? What about the people who disagree with me and the people who know that I disagree with them? Would they use these words right here to describe me? 
What about the people who I'm engaging with online? Would they use these words to describe me? What about those folks who get to be a part of my closed door, unedited conversations? Do you have a group of friends like that? You just kind of just take the mask off and be real? Would those people use these words to describe me? Here's my last question. Have I given any of those people permission to give me honest feedback about how accurately these words do or don't describe me? If you're a note taker, and I hope that you are, I want to start here. Would you write this down? We can decide in the moment or we can pre-decide right now to respond with gentleness and respect. We can say, wait and see what happens in the moment, how we feel and how the other person is treating us, or we can pre-decide right now, no matter what the moment is like, no matter what I feel like, no matter what the other person is like, no matter what, I'm responding with gentleness and respect. And I want to suggest today, I want to suggest that if we wait and decide in the moment, if we're not willing to pre-decide no matter what, gentleness and respect, and also pre-decide right now, I will do whatever I have to do to develop those things and to grow in areas of being gentle and giving respect. What I'm suggesting is if we're not willing to make that pre-decision right now, at least in this area of our life, we're not following Jesus. So can we just say right now, I'm, just, I'm pre-deciding right now, I'm pre-deciding again right now that no matter what, I'm responding with gentleness and respect. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. This right here, gentleness and respect, they are products of doing this first. This right here happens because we've revered Christ as Lord. You know what that means? That means for all of us who would say that we're followers of Jesus, our disposition towards people has nothing to do with their disposition towards us. Our disposition towards people is 0% based on their disposition towards us and how they treat us. As a matter of fact, it's wholly based on Jesus' disposition towards us and our response to him. And so when we reflect uh, gentleness and respect, and when we give gentleness and respect to someone else, it's not merely a reflection of what we think about them. It's you and me choosing to reflect Jesus. And that's at the heart, that's the essence of what it means to be made in his image. And so if it comes down to deciding in the moment or pre-deciding right now, I say let's pre-decide. Let's just, let's just pre-decide right now. No matter what it takes in the moment, I'm gonna give gentleness and respect, and no matter what it takes right now to develop it, I'm gonna do what I have to do to develop gentleness and respect. How does that sound? Does that sound good? Are you guys with me? All right, I got one person over here. We're in it together. So there are probably all kinds of pre-decisions that we could make to support that, but I wanna suggest two today, and here's the first one. Let's pre-decide what we want most. Answers to objections or ammo for debate. So far, every time I've said this, people have laughed. And this is why I think we laugh. Because we know what it's like to be on the wrong side of that. And we all know what it's like, it feels kind of good, <laughs> to zing people, right? And if this is what we opt for, it's because deep down there's something in us that really we just kind of want to zing people. And I want to say that if this is what we're doing, if we opt for ammo for debate, the gentleness and respect are not going to be realities. Maybe, maybe we'll demonstrate gentleness and respect as tactics when they serve our advantage, when they're to our advantage, but they won't be virtues that flow out of our character. 
And what I want to say today is don't take the bait. Don't fall for the trap of trying to develop clever tactics instead of developing Jesus-like character. But if we opt for this, if you say, no, 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 no. I, what I care about is being able to answer people. That means that you have adopted a disposition where you value what you want for people, not what you want from people, and that is a disposition of love. Here's another predecision we can make. Let's predecide if we want to demonstrate how blank we are or how good Jesus is. And I know it looks like I forgot to add something here, but I want you to fill in the blank. There are a variety of different ways that we could fill in the blank. Let's predecide right now if we want to demonstrate how good we are or how good Jesus is. Let's predecide do we want to demonstrate how smart we are or do we want to demonstrate how good Jesus is? Do we want to demonstrate how important we think we are? Or do we want to show off how good Jesus is? What's most important to you? What do you value? And before we try to put this into practice, before we respond to Christopher Hitchens and people who would agree with his viewpoint, before we try to do that with gentleness and respect, I think I owe it to you to acknowledge out loud a tension that we cannot avoid. We just have to learn how to navigate. And this is the tension. Followers of Jesus shouldn't offend anyone. The message of Jesus eventually offends everyone. Does that make sense? I want to say something. It might be kind of new. We are the wrapping paper that people have to get through to get to the gospel. Let me say that one more time. We are the wrapping paper that people have to get through to get to the gospel. They are going to experience what we are like before they hear from us about Jesus. What do we want that experience with us to be like for them? Let's just decide right now. The wrapping paper cannot be offensive. And yet the gospel message of Jesus will be. When we say the gospel, that's a word that really just means good news. And the message of Jesus is good news, but it's good news that starts with bad news. It's bad news that's even offensive news, that we are all far more guilty and morally messed up and sinful than we could ever dare admit. You are not good enough. No matter how hard you try, you won't be good enough. And yet, in Jesus, we're far more loved and accepted and delighted in and forgiven than we could ever dare So for those of us who are followers of Jesus, it's our responsibility to understand this tension and to navigate this tension well. And so for the rest of our time, let's try to do this well together. Let's give answers. Let's respond to Christopher Hitchens or Hitch as he's sometimes affectionately referred to. And let's see if we can do it with gentleness and respect. And for those of us in the room and those who are watching online who are followers of Jesus, I believe this will be appropriately challenging and encouraging. For those of us who are in the room who would say that you're not a follower of Jesus, you're online, you're not following Jesus, hopefully the way that we present this will demonstrate gentleness and respect, and yet at one point or another, the message will offend. So if we're ready, let's turn and listen to Christopher Hitchens again. And then we're going to respond to what he has to say. This is Christopher Hitchens. So when I say I think religion poisons everything, I mean to say it infects us in our most basic integrity. It says we can't be moral 
without Big Brother, without a totalitarian permission. It means we can't be good to one another without this. We, we must be afraid. We must also be forced to love someone who we fear. There's a lot packed into that. There's at least two big ideas. And the first idea we can engage through a question. And the question that he seems to be raising to the surface is this one. Can we be moral and do good things without God? What do you think? Now, this is an interesting question. Now, this is a question that you might even have a good time uh, debating and talking about over lunch today. But for followers of Jesus, this is an irrelevant question. To people who try to take the Bible seriously, this is irrelevant. To people who are trying to seriously respond to the Bible, this is irrelevant. Whatever Christopher Hitchens is reacting against and responding to, it is not biblical Christianity. The Bible doesn't teach. Jesus doesn't teach that you have to believe in God to do moral things or to do good things. Of course you can be a moral person and do good things. There are all kinds of irreligious people and practitioners of other religions who are far better people than I am. There are loads of atheists and Buddhists and Muslims who are more kind, more hospitable, more patient, more generous, more gentle, more respectful than I am. What a person believes or doesn't believe about God has very little to do with their ability to make moral choices or to choose to do good things. This is not the question. This is the question. Can there be good if there is no God? That's the question. And to someone who would say, well, Rick, yeah, you could, they're, they're gonna be good. God doesn't have to exist. I wanna say, according to whom? According to what standard? What does that even mean? I'm gonna throw up a picture, and I want you to look at this picture, and I want you to tell me which one is right side up and which one is right side down. Is one right, is one wrong? Are you ready? Are you guys ready to play along? Yeah. All right. Which one is right side up, which one's right side down? Okay. <laughs> we got some, my small group is loud this morning. If, you're going to say, well, one's right and one's wrong. That's only meaningful if there's a reference point. And that reference point has to be objective. It's not enough just to give somebody's perspective or someone's preference. We need something more substantive than that. Let's try to engage this with a different question. Is Rochester closer in distance to Mordor or to Helm's Deep? But during the winter, it certainly feels like this one. But if you know, uh, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you know exactly what we're talking about here. If you don't know what these places are, we probably can't be friends, but still, I'm glad you're here today. <laughs> this is an intelligible question. Hear me on this. This is an intelligible question, but it's not a meaningful question. And the reason it's not a meaningful question is these places don't exist. We could talk, it's intelligible, we could talk about what's good and bad, what's good and evil, what's right and wrong. We can talk about what's good and we can talk about what isn't, but that's only meaningful if there is objective moral truth. Otherwise, we're just bickering over our favorite moral fictions. If there is no objective standard, we can still have moral ideas and moral opinions, but what we can't have is moral truth. If there is no God, there is no objective standard for moral truth. Now, I want you to hear me on this. We can still have complex and even sophisticated ideas about morality. That's possible. 
But we have to be honest with ourselves. Those complicated and sophisticated ideas about morality are no more valid than the rules of your favorite board game. And the foundation is no more real than Mordor or Helm's Deep. They might be happy fictions, but they're still fictions. We have made them up. And what do we call things that we make up? We call them pretend. And just like with Lord of the Rings, we can create, we can create even complex and sophisticated moral ideas. And we can have stories that reinforce those ideas. And it's possible to make very real moral decisions that are inspired by those stories that at rock bottom are just make-believe. Now, I'm curious, are there any school teachers in the room? Any school teachers, former school teachers? Let me make a confession to you. Uh, I appreciate you. I'm probably one of those parents who you really find annoying. When my daughter Caroline was in seventh grade, she came home and she was just delighted to tell me what she's learning in class about the difference between facts and opinions. And she proudly stated this. She said, this is what we learn in class. Dad, facts are things you can prove and opinions are things you can't prove. Now, as a former philosophy major, this made every hair on the back of my neck stand up because this is nonsense. This is not the difference between facts and opinions. Facts are things that are true, whether you can prove them or not. Opinions are things you believe or it's your perspective. They may or may not be true. And so my daughter and I had a great conversation about this and I gave her some coaching on how to talk to her teacher next time this came up in class. <laughs> and sure enough, a few days later, her teacher proudly announced in the lecture, facts are things you can prove and opinions are things you can't prove. And so my cute little blonde seventh grade girl raised her hand and said, is that a fact? And the teacher said, yes. She said, can you prove it? <laughs> you can't. If you take this definition seriously, then it's an opinion. The problem with trying to take this seriously is that it's self-refuting. It's self-contradictory. Now, don't miss this. It is possible to build our lives on a foundation that is self-refuting and self-contradictory, and that is exactly what is happening if we try to make up our own moral truth. It is possible to build a complex structure of thought and behavior on a foundation that is incoherent and undeniably false. And because God loves you, because you are so incredibly valuable and because your life is too important, he gives us a kind of stop us dead in our tracks reality check. In Proverbs we read this, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. And if there's someone in here or online and you've hesitated to, to give Jesus your trust, to give him your allegiance, isn't it at least in part because you don't want to build your life on something that isn't true? And if that's you, can I ask you this question? If you are resisting God and at the same time trying to insist on living a good life, if you're resisting God and at the same time you would insist that there are things that are wrong, like racism is just wrong, it's wrong for people with power to exploit people without power. It's wrong for politicians to manipulate elections or medical data for personal gain. If you would insist those things are wrong, but you're also trying to resist God, could you see that you're building your life on something that is self-refuting and self-contradictory? If you are resisting the only foundation, the only standard for objective moral truth, and at the same time trying to insist that people live as though there is moral truth, it's contradictory. It's self-refuting. 
If we would allow ourselves to read the Bible seriously, even if you don't believe it, even if, you, even if you're not ready to trust it yet, if you would allow yourself to read it seriously, this is what you will find. It provides the only reasonable explanation for our objective moral experiences. It provides the only reasonable explanation for the reality of objective moral truth. I want to go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. When God first made people, there was only one rule. They were utterly free. They just had one rule. Don't eat from that tree. When I was a kid growing up in church and and going to Sunday school in my little church and going to VBS and all of that kind of stuff, I thought this was about God not wanting people to not know the difference between good and evil. But I thought that because I was a kid. But when you understand that the Bible is this complex book, it's written by adults to adults, you understand that the meaning is far richer than that. This command is about no, <coughs> excuse me, this command is not about knowing the difference between good and evil. It's about who gets to define good and evil. And when Adam and Eve decided that they were going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was their declaration to God. We are stepping out from underneath your authority. We're going to be our own moral authority. We are going to define it for ourselves. And up until that point, there was one prerequisite. There was only one requirement to enjoy the garden, to enjoy life in an unspoiled state, to enjoy a life of thriving and flourishing and the presence of God, the God who loves us and made us in his image. And it was this, happily, live underneath and inside of God's authority. And that was expressed just through one command, but happily live underneath and inside of God's authority. And obviously there are people who don't want to do that. Obviously there are people who reject that. They're not ready to trust in that. That's clear. What may not be clear to all of us is, well, what's the deal with the emotional heat behind it? Why is it so intense? Why would a guy like Christopher Hitchens say it in such a kind of a saucy way. And I think it's to, to us, I think it's to our benefit if we understand, if we can, the emotional intensity and fervor that's behind that rejection. If Christopher Hitchens were here, he would say the kind of thing that we've heard from many other people. And the kind of thing that we would hear from him is, is a fundamental deep down assumption that's common in American thought. And it's not just common in our culture. It's a little too common in our churches. It's a little too common with believers. And it's this. The only way for me to be free is for me to be my own moral authority. In a crude way, probably an unfair way to repeat this, is to say the only way for me to be free is I should be able to do whatever I want or whatever I feel. Now, there are people who would say it's this, but it's rich, it's, it's deeper than that, it's bigger than that. There are people who would say, not only is this the only way for me to be free, but the only way for me to have a life of dignity is if I get to be my own moral authority. Whatever our response is to this, I hope we can see this isn't trite. This is serious stuff, this is deep stuff. I mean, who doesn't want to be free? Who doesn't want to have dignity? And for any person who would say, the only way for me to be free and the only way for me to have a life of dignity is to be my own moral authority, biblical Christianity will offend you. It will agitate you. 
and you will see it as far too restrictive, far too narrow, far too exclusive, maybe even oppressive. And I get that. And that's why when I hear stuff like this, I, my feelings don't get hurt by Christopher Hitchens. It doesn't offend me because when you see it from their vantage point, what they're saying is it feels like my freedom and my dignity is under assault. I hear that. If this is true, if this is the way that it is, if this is the way to have a life of, of freedom and a life of dignity, there's a question that I want to ask. It's not my intent to be offensive. It's not my intent to, to fail on being gentle and respectful. And if I haven't been gentle and respectful, I owe you an apology. But from a place of friendship, of respect and sincerity, I want to ask this question. If this is true, why isn't Vladimir Putin being internationally celebrated as an authentic, free human being? If real freedom and dignity is found in us all being our own moral authority, why isn't he the gold standard? Why isn't he our example? After all, he lives by his own rules. It's brought him phenomenal wealth, phenomenal power. And right now, he's trying to actualize for himself what he wants. And world leaders are trying to constrain his freedom. Why? If freedom and dignity is found in us being our own moral authority, why isn't he being celebrated? Well, we know the common answer. The quick and common response is this. Well, you can do whatever you want as long as you don't harm anyone. Well, who said that? Where does that come from? And if you say, well, that's just how I see it. Well, let me ask you this question again with friendship and sincerity. If everyone gets to be their own moral authority, what gives you the right to impose your morality on somebody else? Aren't you simply doing the same thing that you get mad at people like Vladimir Putin for doing? But let's pretend that millions of people say this. Not just millions, let's say billions of people say this. And, and, you know, we're just in the majority here. Well, what about being in the majority gives us the right to impose this moral viewpoint on people who are in the minority? If that's the case, right and wrong has nothing to do with moral truth. It's really just a matter of math. And let's say millions, even billions of people constructed this idea. You know what it still is? It's made up. It's pretend. Well, let's say you say, well, Rick, come on. This is just true. We just know this is true. Even if people disagree with it, this is the way that it is. Even if people don't like it, this is true. You got to live by this. Well, who said? Where does that come from? I can tell you where it didn't come from. It doesn't come from nature. It doesn't come from science. It doesn't come from logic or reason. What's the standard? What's the source of that objective moral truth? People like Christopher Hitchens, others who agree with him, really people on all sides of this issue are right to connect the idea of freedom and authority together. Freedom is only found with authority, but not in us being our own moral authority that leads to death. Freedom is found in being underneath the right authority. Objective moral truth is inescapable, but it is not unexplainable. It is best and only explained by there being a transcendent moral lawgiver. And that standard for objective moral truth is God himself. Throughout our series, our thesis has been this. 
Faith is not in a competition with reason. It's a consequence of reason, trusting in what is true. This right here, faith, is not just for religiously minded people. This is for everyone. All people have a faith, and all worldviews operate from faith, and every single person has a worldview. Faith means trust. Faith means allegiance. Every single one of us has given our trust or allegiance to a foundation for our life. We've all trusted in something or someone. And if there's anyone here or watching online and you haven't given Jesus your trust and your allegiance, what I'm inviting you to do is to look at your foundation again. Would you see, is it really worthy of your trust? Because if you find that your foundation cannot make sense of the things that make the most sense to you. You don't have to stay stuck with that foundation. You don't have to be locked in a contradictory, self-refuting foundation. You can switch to a foundation for your life that is worthy of your trust. And the words of 1 Peter 3.15, they're not just for those who are already convinced of Jesus. They're words that are also for the doubter, for the curious, for the skeptic. But in your hearts, Revere Christ as Lord. And the reason that Christopher Hitchens and those who would agree with him have rejected Jesus is because he thinks it's wrong to be forced to love someone who you have to fear. He's wrong on both counts. We don't love Jesus because we're forced to love Jesus. We love Jesus because we want to. We love Jesus because really we can't help it. It's the natural response. It's the natural response when you see him for who he truly is. Loving Jesus is the irresistible response when we see all that he's done to love us. And loving Jesus is the irresistible response when we see the carnage and the wreckage and the cost of us trying to be our own moral authorities. And when the Bible talks about fearing the Lord, it's not talking about terror. It's really talking about this word right here. It's talking about revere. It's talking about reverence. It's talking about a response of awe. And when we revere Jesus, we're not afraid of him. We treasure him. We are in awe of him. We adore him. We worship him. We happily pivot and move ourselves underneath his authority and follow him. Every single one of us have a response to what we're talking about today. Every single one of us have a response to Jesus in the room and online. What I'm asking is, let's respond intentionally. And I want to suggest to you today that there's really only a handful of reasonable responses to Jesus. The only reasonable responses to Jesus are to adore him, abhor him, or explore him. And if you're here and you're saying, Rick, you've given me a lot to think about, or this is kind of new, I, I need to process this, I need to work through this, I want to invite you to keep asking questions to keep exploring. Take whatever time that you need. And as you do, we promise to be the kind of church where you can experience real belonging. You are wanted here. You are welcomed here. There are friendships waiting for you here. And we promise to be the kind of church where we are going to give you our very best answers to your most important questions. But if you're someone who's saying, Rick, you know what? I've got to be. The only way for me to be free, the only way for me to have a life of dignity is to is for me to be my own moral authority. That means you cannot be casual with Jesus because he is not casual about his claim to be the authority over your life and over my life and over all things. 
He says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He claims to be the king. And you either revere the king or you rebel against the king, but you can't be casual with someone who claims to be the king of your life. And we're going to end our service with a time of giving everyone a chance to corporately respond with adoration. Over the past few weeks, we've tried to create an intentional opportunity for every one of us to respond intentionally. If you would say, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I've got unanswered questions, we're glad you're here. Or we want to give you an opportunity to, to talk with a pastor. Or maybe you're saying, I just, I just need somebody to pray with me. We're going to have some pastors waiting over here underneath the cross at the end of the service. We invite you to take advantage of that. If you're saying that, Rick, you know, I could use some belonging, I could use some community and some friendship, we invite you to stop by the Connections desk out in the lobby and, and meet some folks, and, and we can help you get to meet people around here and get on a group or get in a team. For anyone who says, you know, I'm, I really want to live a life surrendered to Jesus, and I want to I demonstrate that by trusting him with my money and giving financially, we invite you to do that. There are all kinds of appropriate ways to respond to him intentionally. But right now, what we're going to do is create a corporate opportunity for us to intentionally respond with adoration. A few minutes ago, I said that there was only really one way out of the garden. There was one way out of God's presence, and that was to step out from underneath his authority. And there's only one way back into the garden. There's only one way back into his presence, and that's to honor his authority. But the problem is, no matter how hard we try, we can't. No matter how badly we want it, we cannot do it. We all fall short and continue to fall short. And that's why Jesus, who is God, took on what it meant to be human, and he came and he lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we deserve to die. He kept God's law perfectly twice. He honored what it meant to truly honor God as authority. And he did that by the way that he lived his life, perfectly honoring God's law, and then on the cross, he gave his life, paying the price as though he had broken it. He kept it twice. And for all of those who trust in him, he says, I will give you what only I deserve, and I'll take on what you deserve. It is the great exchange. When we trust in Jesus, he gives us what he deserves and instead took on what we deserve. And that's what we remember when we celebrate communion. And when we come and we take a piece of bread or a wafer, we're remembering that his body was given for us. And when we drank the cup, we're remembering that his blood was shed for us. And that night that Jesus was with his followers, he was about to be arrested. He held up the cup and he said, my blood is given for you. And this was a symbol of a relationship that's made possible. And he used the word covenant. Because of what he was going to do on the cross and through the resurrection, the great divide could be filled by Jesus so that we could be restored to our heavenly father who loves us. And so when we participate in this, that's what we are celebrating. That is the reason for our adoration. And this is appropriate for people who have trusted in Jesus. We don't expect everybody to participate. And so if you're not ready to trust in Jesus, it's okay just to watch and observe. But if you're saying, Rick, I, I want to trust in Jesus. I want to move and I want him to be the foundation of my life. Well, today you could participate in communion as a declaration of saying, Jesus, I trust in you and I give my allegiance to you. I'm gonna pray. And after I pray, the band will play and you're invited to get up from the left, come down and return on the right. If you're not able to come down forward for health reasons, you can raise your hand and one of our servers will come to you. So I'm gonna pray. And then we invite you to respond 
with adoration. Heavenly Father, you are so good. And you have made all kinds of pathways available for us to know about you. But yet there's only one way for us to truly know you, and that is through Jesus. And we are grateful and we adore him. And it is our desire to honor you, to celebrate him, and to live a life of grateful joy based on all that we've received through Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.